from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you? I am... A little bit under the weather, but I am great. How are you tonight, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. I like your Halloween costume. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I worked it's, on it for decades. It, it, it's not everyone who can pull off that Jessica Rabbit it's, costume. Well, you know, it, the red hair just makes it all come together. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the reason I, I, I bring up Jessica Rabbit is because we're going to be talking to a very special guest today who actually worked on Roger Rabbit and the sequel to Roger Rabbit that people don't know very much about. But in our Disney Legends series, we share stories about individuals who have made an extraordinary and integral contribution to the Walt Disney Company. Today on Connecting with Walt, Craig and I are honored to speak with Disney legend Floyd Norman. Floyd Norman was hired at the Walt Disney Studio in 1956 and was handpicked by Walt Disney to work on the animated film The Jungle Book. After Walt's passing, Floyd left the Walt Disney Studio to start his own company, Vignette Films, to produce black history films for high schools. Baby boomers may know Floyd for his work with Hanna-Barbera on Saturday morning cartoons like the Fat Albert Special, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Johnny Quest, Scooby-Doo, and Josie and the Pussycats, amongst others. Floyd returned to Disney Publishing in the 1980s before moving over to Pixar to work on groundbreaking films like Toy Story 2 and Monsters, Inc., until his job was discontinued when he turned 65. Yet, as we will learn, that was not the end of Floyd's career with the Walt Disney Company. Floyd received the Windsor McKay Award in 2003 and was named a Disney legend in 2007. Floyd's career is featured in the new film documentary, Floyd Norman, An Animated Life. Floyd, thank you for joining us on Connecting with Walt. Well, happy to be here. Great. Well, it's our honor to have you here. Um, Floyd, when I met you at the Walt Disney Family Museum in January 2016, there were three description of, descriptions of you that I'd like to get your response to. Uh, you've, been, you've been referred to as the Forrest Gump of animation. So, in your opinion, is that title well-deserved, and why? <laughs> well, I don't know. People uh, give me all kinds of titles. And whether it's deserved or not, I really don't know. In many ways, I guess it's because I've sort of been everywhere at Disney. I mean, you can find me in animation, in television, in publishing, in uh, special projects, and consumer products, and, uh, you know, uh, 
video games, uh, software development. I've kind of like been all over the place. So maybe that's where the Forrest Gump comes from because I tend to pop up all over the company. <laughs> that's true. And I know in the documentary, Floyd Norman and Animated Life, they talk about any time there was a breakthrough in animation, you were involved. Well, there were breakthroughs going on all the time, I, I guess, when you think about well, what happened in the, in the late 50s, early 60s with the coming of Xerox, how that uh, influenced our filmmaking, uh, 101 Dalmatians in particular. And then in the 80s, we moved to digital paint. And then eventually, by the 90s, uh, the entire production pipeline had become digital. So, you know, these things have been evolving and, and progressing over time. But, you know, that's the kind of guy Walt Disney was. His studio was always uh, pioneering new technologies. So really none of this was anything surprising or, or new to me. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that's a good point you make about Walt Disney and how much he loved new technology. I know when people were very saddened by the fact that hand-drawn animation was going away in favor of digital, and I thought... I think Walt, you know, I don't like to speculate, but I think Walt would have embraced it, would have embraced the new technology. Well, so. he would have. There's no, no doubt about that. Uh, and, of course, I embraced it myself when I mm -hmm. discovered Pixar, although I was aware of Pixar, but I discovered Pixar as a filmmaker in 1994 when I saw my first early story reels on Toy Story. Mm -hmm. And that made me realize, wow, this is going to change everything. Uh, the only regret I have is that it uh, CG technology has tended to marginalize hand-drawn animation. And, and that's a shame because I never saw that happening. I saw CGI as a terrific new tool, but I thought it could exist side by side along with traditional hand-drawn animation. Mm -hmm. do, do you think there's a chance that hand-drawn animation would make a resurgence? Oh, I think so. I think so. Right now, CGI is the shiny new toy. And, of course, it has become the uh, the production process of choice by all the studios. And they've built uh, a digital infrastructure. And naturally, it's only natural that they would use this to make films. But I think in time, the public is going to rediscover hand-drawn animation because it is a marvelous art form all by itself. There's nothing like a hand-drawn Disney film. That's why people still watch Pinocchio and Snow White and Dumbo even today. That stuff is not old-fashioned. Just because it's hand-drawn doesn't mean it's from the past. Yeah, historically it's from the past, but it's just as viable and, 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 and vital and alive as it always was. And I think the public one day is going to discover what magic is in hand-drawn animation. Mm -hmm. I agree. I hope so. Yeah. Now, now, you've also been described as a troublemaker, yet when, when I saw you at the museum, you came across so mild-mannered and gentlemanly. Um, but I get the impression you get some satisfaction from being referred to as a troublemaker. So uh, how did you earn the title uh, of troublemaker? Well, I don't know if I, if I totally deserve that title. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I seek that title. I, I remember when Roy Edward Disney... Uh, <laughs> presented the uh, Disney Legend Award to me, and he referred to me as, uh, uh, you know, a troublemaker is basically a Disney artist. You know, the, mm -hmm. the two go hand in hand. If you're a Disney artist, chances are you're a troublemaker. 
If you're a troublemaker, you're a Disney artist. So Roy Edward Disney understood that. And so for years, uh, the artists at Disney were always shaking things up, you know, stirring the pot, uh, causing a little turmoil. Because out of that turmoil, out of that chaos comes creativity. And so I don't see being a troublemaker a, a negative thing. I don't think it's negative mm -hmm. at all. I think Walt Disney, in many ways, was a troublemaker himself, always shaking things up, always rocking the boat, always pushing uh, for his artists to come up with new ideas. And, and in order to do that, you can't allow your staff to become complacent. Otherwise, you know, you find yourself in a rut. So a guy who stirs things up, a guy who could be characterized as a troublemaker, is really a guy who just wants to see things uh, happening, who wants to see things moving forward, and who doesn't want to settle for the tried and true and settle down into a rut. So maybe in that sense, a creative person is a troublemaker. That's true. That, that, yeah. that's a, I think it's a very positive way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it is. I think it's very positive. I, I'm glad that my son didn't hear that when he was in grammar school. When <laughs> the teacher said he was a troublemaker, he would say, hey, this is a good thing. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, I, I, think, I think even teachers find out that sometimes their troublemakers in, in, in class sometimes stimulate the rest of the class. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, it's true. I'm a teacher, and, and I, found, I found that sometimes the, the students who are labeled as that, if you can direct them, and yeah. direct that energy and that creativity, uh, they they accomplish great things. Oh yes, yes, so. I believe that. Mm -hmm. Now, finally, in in every every time you're introduced and in every bio that's written about you, you're mentioned as the first African American hired by the Walt Disney Studios, and and with this sort of comes a, an assumed weight of social responsibility, and and. How how did what was it like, um, you know, being hired in the 1950s uh, as at, at the Walt Disney Studios? Well, I came to the Walt Disney Studios in the 1950s as another young artist, and and the guys in my class, and we you could call it a class because we were in training. The guys in my class came from all backgrounds. I mean, they were from. Uh, 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 Stan Chen was Asian. He was from New York, and and Rick Gonzalez was a Latino from uh, El Paso, Texas, and uh, Tom Dejeuner uh, was French, and Tom Yakutas was from Lithuania. So we were a mixed bag. We were just a bunch of artists, and and nobody came to Disney with any sense of social responsibility, or breaking down barriers, or being pioneers. We were only pioneers in the sense that we were just a bunch of young kids looking for a job at Disney. So honestly, there was no burden of a social responsibility on any of us to mm -hmm. represent our group or our ethnicity or our color. That, it, that just didn't exist. We were just a group of young artists. Even though we were all different, we were, in, in many ways, pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. So you were, just, you were all just talented, and that's what Walt wanted. So, and then, uh, and what inspired you to go uh, to become an artist and go into the field of animation? Because animation was still sort of in its infancy. Then. It it was, even though animation had been around for a long time. When I was a kid, uh, it was still to a lot of people a, a very new industry, a very new business, a very new art form. I guess I was 
inspired by art. I was always an artist. I was always drawing, drawing pictures, even when I was a little kid. You know, kids would, you know, they get their box of crayons and they start drawing. Well, a lot of kids grow out of that, and they eventually they stop drawing. In my case, I simply never stopped drawing. Uh, I just kept on drawing. But something happened, something significant happened when I was a little kid. We had storytellers who would come to our schools and to social groups. Men and, we- men and women would set us down, all us little kids in a circle, and they would tell us stories. And I found storytelling fascinating. So think about it. The, the love of art, of drawing and painting, and the love of storytelling, uh, those two things just came together. And the perfect embodiment of all this was the Walt Disney Studio. Art and storytelling coming together in a magical motion picture. And when I realized that, I knew the only career for me was working for Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's so true. Because I know Walt Disney said something like, you know, you can draw the most beautiful you know, p- yeah. paintings and art, but if there's no story, you right. know, it's it's all just going to fail. Yeah, so. yeah. You you need that compelling narrative to to make it all uh, come alive, and and it's all something we can relate to as well. You know, uh, we can all relate to to a hero or a heroine off on a quest, off on a journey, trying to discover themselves or discover something, and we take that journey with them. There's something just fascinating about a well-told story. And I learned that as a child when the storytellers would have me spellbound when I was a little five- or six-year-old kid listening to tall tales around a campfire. Well, in many ways, the motion picture theater is kind of like a, uh, a modern version of a campfire. We all gather together, and we all share this amazing story that's being told to us on screen. And, of course, there was no better storyteller than Walt Disney himself. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. why I prefer to see films, especially Disney films, in the theater for that exact reason. I want that shared experience rather, oh, yeah. than, rather than, even though we have wonderful televisions and sound systems in our homes, oh, it's, yeah. not, it's not the same experience as having that shared experience watching it in the dark yeah, theater. Yeah, it truly is something very special. And I can't tell you, uh, the, the most fun I have is sometimes going out to see a Disney movie with uh, a brand new audience. And I just sit in the audience just like I'm part of, you know, just the rest of the crowd. And I enjoy that film along with uh, dozens of other people. And that shared experience is something wonderful. Now, of course, I learn from this because uh, that shared experience for me, it's also I'm being tutored. I'm learning what audiences respond to. I'm learning about what makes them laugh and what makes them cry. Mm-hmm. So it's part of my business. Mm-hmm. But it's also a joy to enjoy a well-told story and to share that with an audience. Absolutely. Now, yeah. you, you, you were, in 1956, you were a young artist just starting out in your career, and you joined the Walt Disney Studio at an incredibly dynamic time in its history. Uh, the Mickey Mouse Club was on the air. Sleeping Beauty was in production. Walt's right. Nine Old Men were still at the studio, and Disneyland was being developed. What was it like when you walked into this? And this was your beginning, Yeah, it was a hotbed of creativity. I honestly could not have picked a better time to begin my career at the Disney studio when there was so much going on. 
where there were so many artists, so many designers and writers and technicians and 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 storytellers and of course actors and musicians and what an incredible mix of of talented people and to be thrown into that mix was just for a young kid boy it was just the best thing in the world i mean there was so much to see and do you could not absorb it fast enough they were making movies out on the sound stage they were shooting tv shows they were doing animation they were building uh, and designing theme parks uh they were everything was happening at disney and Walt kind of like presided over all of it. He was the old maestro watching it all and directing it all, kind of like the uh, Sorcerer and Sorcerer's Apprentice. Uh, Walt was in charge of the whole thing, but it was just a glorious time. And for a young kid coming to Disney, boy, I couldn't have chosen a better time. So what was it like you know, working with some of the nine old men? Um, because you know, when we hear their names, even so many years later, we're just awestruck. Yeah. By their work and their art. I mean, what was it like for you to to be with them? <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, we were certainly intimidated by the nine old men. Keep in mind, they were already, even at that time, even in the 50s, they were already legendary. Everybody knew the names of Milt Call, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, John Lounsbury, Ward Kimball, Les Clark. I mean, everybody knew those names. And, and so for all of us kids... Uh, we were, uh, you know, we didn't dare even approach them because they were like kings, you know, they were animation royalty. So we would sometimes deal with their assistants, but we never, we never even spoke with them. As a matter of fact, I was at the studio for at least a year or two before I even had the courage to speak to an animator, you know. <laughs> That's the way it was back then. You would deal with uh, their subordinates, you would deal with their assistants, but you would never deal directly with them because, in truth, you weren't really worthy. <laughs> we were just kids in training, so we didn't have the artistic chops to even deal with uh, an animator, and certainly not a top-notch animator like the Nine Old Men. So for years, we watched these old guys from afar, and didn't dare approach them uh, because they were, you know, the best of the best. And uh, they were, like I said, they were animation royalty. Now, as the years go by and you begin to settle in and you begin to grow as an artist, now you feel a little more comfortable approaching uh, a man like Frank Thomas or Milt Call or Ward Kimball. But it took a while. It didn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. For the longest time, we were awestruck as young artists by these incredible Disney talents. Yeah, I know, uh, I know when I was watching the documentary and also in reading your book, I know you, you got particularly close with Ward Kimball. Yeah, I like Ward. He was, uh, he was one of my favorite animators and uh, I was lucky. I, I had the opportunity to know Ward's children, uh, Kelly and John. And I would spend weekends, uh, sometimes over at their home in Highland Park. And on occasion, on a Saturday night or Saturday afternoon, Ward and Betty Kimball would stop by to see the kids. And so this gave me uh, the opportunity to have Ward Kimball all to myself. And I could set him down in the living room and ask him all kinds of questions. It was things like this that were just uh, a fantastic opportunity for a young kid like myself. Yeah. And I loved your stories of Milt Call. I had no idea 
that um, he could, you know, that, that he could, oh, oh, I don't know, just show his emotions. <laughs> uh, he was, yeah, Milt was the bombastic animator uh-huh. at this, uh, where some of the other guys were more uh, quiet and withdrawn or kept to themselves. Milt was the kind of guy who was uh, gregarious, outspoken, opinionated, and uh, everybody knew about Carl's temper. Uh, again, as was mentioned in the film, uh, Milt did not like to lose a game of chess. And so when he lost a chess game, you would just hear this loud crash and the uh, chess pieces being scattered all over the room as Milt uh, was not pleased with losing a chess match. So (laughs) that's the kind of guy he was. He was uh, very colorful. Yeah, one of the things I enjoyed in in your documentary uh, um, is that, that there are some animated sequences that are based on your your art, and that one of Milk Call throwing somebody out of uh, his office after he he was beat at checkers or chess and then one by one everything milk just throws things out of the office as they yeah. bounce on this poor young guy <laughs> uh, so, yeah that was hilarious but, you know and and that and that kind of thing really happened people think oh this is animation you guys are just exaggerating but a lot of the the uh, things that happened at the disney studio were real uh, these were real people. These were real Disney artists. Uh, they were very colorful, as you might imagine, and enjoyed all kinds of pranks and all kinds of, uh, you know, fooling around, as artists will do sometimes. But, you know, Walt Disney allowed it. Uh, Walt had no problem with his artists being exuberant and expressing themselves. He didn't, uh, you know, clamp the lid shut. He allowed the artists to express themselves because he knew out of all that would come amazing creativity. And really, that's what Walt wanted. He wanted his artists to be free to express themselves. And if they had to blow off steam sometimes, then so be it. As long as Walt got the good work, that was all that mattered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now speaking of Walt, you, you were fortunate enough to have worked when Walt was at the studio. What were, your, what were some of your encounters with him? Well, you know, to have an encounter with Walt Disney was extremely rare. Keep in mind, there were hundreds of people employed by the Disney organization. Hundreds. And now, think about that. There's only probably a dozen or so people who met on a regular basis with Walt Disney. Maybe a dozen or so, sometimes less than that. A half dozen guys would meet with Walt. Now, think of your chances of sitting in a meeting with Walt Disney. They would be pretty slim. Chances are it would probably never happen. Imagine how lucky I was as a young Disney artist to have the opportunity to sit in the same room with Walt Disney. That was just uh, a pure caprice. Uh, That was just sheer uh, luck that came my way that put me in the same room with uh, one of the world's greatest storytellers and to learn from a master firsthand. Uh, that was just an opportunity I could never have even imagined. And yet, it happened. And I was the lucky recipient of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, sometimes we hear, in, in looking at Walt from today's, through today's eyes, you know, sometimes it seems like, oh my gosh, he would be an HR manager's nightmare. Because just, you know, he didn't give direct praise. And sometimes you would certainly know when he was, not happy with you and he you know really drove people to perfection but 
everyone I've spoken with and everyone you know I've read about, he was beloved by everybody yeah. that worked with him. And wh why do you think that is? What attributes did he have that made him so loved by everyone? Yeah, it seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Walt, Walt Disney was a very demanding boss. Some might say he was not easy to work for because he did demand perfection. He did uh, want top quality. He didn't want to settle for second best. So a man that demanding sounds like he would be a tough boss. And yet I found Walt Disney one of the best bosses I ever worked for. While it's true he was uh, demanding perfection, I really don't have any problem with uh, a leader who demands uh, the very best, you know, who shoots for top quality. Uh, that's not a problem with me because I, I want to do my best. And if the bar is raised high, so be it. If the bar is raised higher, uh, then you have to rise to that challenge. And so, yeah, Walt did push us. Walt did demand uh, the best, our best work. And uh, that was okay. I had no problem with that. And I must say that demanding as he was, Walt was always fair. I never heard him the whole time I was there ever say an unkind word to anyone. Sure, he could be pointed and direct in his criticism, but he was never rude or, or obtuse. He was always uh, a leader who knew what he wanted, and he made that quite clear. But he was, uh, in many ways, uh, like a kindly uncle who would help you along the way if you were having a difficult time. So he was a great guy. I mean, I call him the old maestro. He was, uh, he was our leader. He was our visionary. And he was certainly the best guy I've ever worked for during my long, long career. Now, you voiced a very strong opinion on this. I remember reading an article that you wrote, and this is addressed in your documentary. You know, in 2014, Meryl Streep made a notorious claim during the National Board of Review Awards ceremony that Walt Disney was sexist and anti-Semitic. She took out of context a quote from Ward Kimball from Neil Gabler's biography of Walt Disney. Um, Walt Disney didn't trust women or cats. And the, the 2016 yeah. PBS Walt Disney American Experience attempted to make this same claim. Um, what, can you share with our listeners what your response to this is? Well, I actually did uh, write a response to that uh, to those statements made by Meryl Streep. And, and, and keep in mind, I always want to add that I have a great deal of respect for Meryl Streep as an actress. I think she's an incredible performer. And, and, and I think she sadly was just misinformed. Uh, these accusations toward Walt Disney have been going on for years. Uh, I spoke with Walt Disney's daughter, Diane Disney Miller, about this uh, at length some years ago. And a good part of why she created the Walt Disney Family Museum was to dispel these rumors and accusations that simply are not true. Walt Disney was not a gender bigot and gave women opportunities, even at a time when a lot of businesses did not uh, promote women and, and give them opportunity. Walt did that, and, uh, and that's not even recognized by a lot of people. Walt Disney was certainly not an anti-Semite. Uh, there were many, many Jewish people 
working at his studio, uh, songwriters, uh, uh, screenwriters, uh, artists. Uh, I knew them. It's not like I can, you know, uh, I can't verify. I knew these guys, and, and so they were there, and uh, Walt loved these guys. Uh, Walt Disney was certainly not a racist. Uh, why would a racist have a, uh, a person of color in his story meetings at, at the highest level uh, in his studio? So all the accusations against Walt Disney are patently untrue, and yet we still have to continue, even to this day, defend Walt, because there are people who continually want to see him as a flawed human being. Uh, I'm not saying that Walt Disney was perfect by any means, because he wasn't. He was a man like any other man, but he certainly wasn't the kind of uh, man uh, that some people want to characterize as a racist, an anti-Semite, and a gender bigot. He was none of those, and, and far from it. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, and that's, and that's I, I've heard that just across the board, and, and everything I've read has said the same thing. Oh, yes. From, from, the, from the reputable biographies. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. So, so yeah. now, now, in your early years at the Disney Studios, you worked on some of the most beloved uh, you know, films and television shows. You started out on the Mickey Mouse Club. I oh, mean, yes. I mean, talk about, you know, jumping right into American culture. And, yeah. the, Donald, <laughs> and the, the Donald Duck shorts, the Disneyland TV show, what has become probably one of the most beloved uh, Disney films, Sleeping Beauty, um, yes. even, though, even though it didn't start out that way. Oh, it no, Sword in a Stone, which was, when I was a boy, that was one of my favorite films. Um, Mary Poppins and my son's favorite, The Jungle Book. Oh, my. Um, so what, so, I mean, my goodness, I mean, what, what a career. So can, what, 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 what are some of the most memorable things you remember about this? Because these will live on. You know, oh, your yeah. work is going to live on for generations. Well, that's what's great about the work that we do. Uh, the magic we put on the screen, it, it, it's, uh, it's not just there and, and goes away. We know that it'll live on and it'll be seen and enjoyed again by generations yet to come. And, and that's a wonderful thought, knowing that we've provided uh, entertainment that will live uh, you know, beyond us. And I was just lucky to be at the studio during a time when we were making picture after picture, film after film that was, you know, very entertaining and and, uh, and people uh, remember these films 50, 60 years later. Uh, people come up to me and say, The Jungle Book is one of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's very flattering, uh, having worked on it. But, you know, that's the way it goes when you're, you're doing the job. When you're doing it at the time, you don't think you're doing anything, uh, you know, historical or exceptional, it's just your job. You, you enjoy it, and you, you're happy that people enjoy it, but you, you never think that much about it until you look back, say, some 50 years later, and realize you were part of something magical. It's like working on Mary Poppins and, and being able to speak, even today where I've spoken to Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke about what a wonderful time we had on that picture. Uh, I still speak with Richard Sherman even today, and I tell Richard, boy, did we have fun when we were working on Mary Poppins back in the 1960s when we were still young men. We were still in our 30s, 
back then, and 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 that film lives on today. And so we have wonderful memories to to draw from, mm-hmm. and just a great time and remembering Walt Disney, and how happy he was, and what a what a great time this was to work at the Disney Studio. I, I can't think of uh, anything better than uh, coming to work every day and creating magic. Now, what do you attribute maybe a film like Sleeping Beauty? It started out, you know, and it wasn't widely regarded when it was first released. Yet, as generations went by, it is now one of the top favorite of the Disney animated films. And, and you know, Fantasia was the same way. And, and there's been other films. Why, what is the reason that a film maybe starts out slow and then suddenly it becomes so well acclaimed years later? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what's so amazing about uh, art and creativity. Because sometimes your audience, uh, it takes a while for the audience to discover the film. Sleeping Beauty was not highly regarded when it was released back in 1959. And uh, it received uh, a good deal of criticism and uh, a tepid audience response. And yet, over the years, people have come to regard that film as a Disney masterpiece. And it is. It is a beautifully handcrafted film. Uh, Every frame pretty much drawn by hand. It is a gorgeous film, almost like a, a European tapestry uh, just marvelous layer upon layer of gorgeous art. And in time, the public discovers that. So it's not like this is a lost piece of art. Thankfully, these films are not lost. They're there for audiences to discover and rediscover. And so I think that's what's wonderful about our medium. So many motion pictures that Hollywood churns out are seen and then forgotten. Uh, they maybe crop up a few years later on television and then forgotten again. But our Disney films, they have a magical life of their own. And they keep coming back, and they seem to come back with a new spirit and vitality as they reach a new audience. And then another audience, uh, children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, enjoy the same movie their great-grandparents enjoyed many, many years ago. So these Disney films, you know, they take on a life of their own, and they never die. And I think that's what's so marvelous about our medium. Our medium continues to be alive and vital. It never gets old, and it never dies. And that's a good feeling to know you're part of something that's that permanent. I agree. And and I miss the fact that they don't re-release the films to theaters every seven years. I think that's such a loss that... The, the new generations can't experience them as we did, you know, sure. on the big screen, except like when theaters maybe will show them as in a special showing or yeah. something. But, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. these films were meant to be enjoyed on the big screen. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have that, you, you really are missing out on something special. Yeah. Now, after Walt's passing, you left the Disney studio and started Vignette films with a fellow artist, Leo Sullivan, and, and after these wonderful experiences of working at the Walt Disney Studio, what, what made you decide to leave and start out on your own? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, my boss, uh, when I told him I was leaving, uh, thought I was dissatisfied, thought I either didn't like my job or I wasn't making enough money, and I told him it was neither of those things. I was still a young man. 
and I still had things I wanted to do, things I wanted to try. And so my leaving Disney was not because I was in any way dissatisfied with the Walt Disney Studios. I just wanted to try some other things. I wanted to push myself and see how far I could go. And so there's no better time to do that when you're young because you're not, you know, encumbered by a lot of responsibilities. I wasn't married. I didn't have a family. So I could, I could step out there and take chances and do things I could not ordinarily do, uh, you know, say some years later. So it was just a, a time to go out and experiment, a time to make other kinds of films, and a, a time to try my hand at writing and directing and producing and just seeing how far I could take this thing of telling stories using motion pictures. So it was, a, I think, a grand and glorious experiment. Uh, we didn't uh, succeed in becoming a successful company, although we did have success in that we made dozens and dozens of motion pictures that uh, were seen by people. And in the case of the educational films, were seen by school children across the country. So it was a worthwhile venture, and I don't regret a day of it. I think it was, uh, it was, uh, it was worth my time, and it was worth doing that bold experiment back in the 1960s. Yeah, it, it was almost like you. It was. It, it came a little before its time. In that, yeah. I, it, a few years, you know, into the future, and I think it would have been wildly successful. So, but I've seen clips. I like to think of, so. <laughs> yeah, I've seen clips of some of them. You know, they're they're out there on YouTube, and they just, they just look really well made. And being you know that I've taught history and all that, I always think it's so sad that. So many teachers make history dull for children. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like criminal. And um, the, the, the fact that you were making, you were just, you were filling, you and Leo were filling such a hole at that time. Yeah, um, we were trying with your to. history films. You know, it, it's a shame that, that they, weren't, they weren't more successful. But who knows? Maybe like Sleeping Beauty, they'll get rediscovered. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, these films were always uh, a starting point for learning. Uh, our films were never intended to tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. After all, you can't you can't teach all of history in one short film. But right. what the films were meant to do was to inspire learning, to to uh, be a, a spark plug, to get the student interested in studying more about this particular topic or this particular individual. And, and it was meant to push their learning forward, not to do the whole job for them, because no film can do that. But it was a starting point, and it was a very exciting time. And I really enjoyed doing uh, teaching on film as much as I did entertaining. I think in some ways it's just as creative, because now you're dealing with, uh, you know, not fantasy, but now you're dealing with facts and, and historical events. But that's still challenging in its own right. So it was it was a good time, and I enjoyed I enjoyed that time making educational films. Now and then you um, then you went to where probably a baby boomers definitely know your work. You you ended up over at Hanna Barbera, who were yes. basically completely responsible practically for Saturday morning <laughs> cartoons back in those days. Oh, yes. I didn't realize I didn't realize I saw your work. You know, I I enjoyed Casper the Friendly Ghost, and Johnny Quest was one of my favorites. And oh, I know yeah. you did you did Scooby Doo, um, 
Josie and the Pussycat sort of came at the end of my cart Saturday morning cartoon watching days. Uh-huh. And right. uh, so that must have been a very different experience going from Walt Disney Studios or maybe every few years they put out, uh, you know, an animated feature to uh, Hanna-Barbera that was just churning out <laughs> multiple, multiple shorts weekly. Yeah, we were truly a cartoon factory. <laughs> and as I often joke, our job was mainly to sell sugar cereal and toys. <laughs> that was our intended purpose, was to sell cereal and toys. But in the meantime, filling all this airtime with uh, shows like Johnny Quest and and, and superheroes like the, uh, oh gosh, I can't think of the name of all the shows I worked on. There were so many, and, and of course, we would crank these things out every year. That every year there'd be you know, maybe six or seven new shows on the docket that we had to put into production. So we were really cranking these things out, and no one had any illusions about doing uh, stellar work. We were just uh, providing pr- product for television, and television at that time was uh, hungrily gobbling up uh, material, and we simply couldn't provide enough content to feed that hungry monster called television. But it did uh, entertain a lot of boys and girls across the nation, and a lot of people tell me even today all of the shows that uh, they watched when they were kids, when they would sit down on Saturday morning with a bowl of cereal Mm -hmm. and enjoy these Saturday morning cartoons. So, you know, that was uh, an interesting time. I did that for around seven years, and uh, it was fun, and uh, it wasn't the same as working at Disney, but it was certainly a different kind of work, and, and we had a good time doing it. I, I must say the studio was filled with a lot of, uh, a lot of ex-Disney employees who were working at Hanna-Barbera. So a lot of the guys I knew already from Disney, and so we were already old pals, and we had a great time working together in this new medium called television. Now, now, during my research, I came across a, a proposed film you were working on called Huck's Landing for the Tom Carter studio in the yes, 1980s. And I didn't come across a whole lot on that. Can you tell us what that was about? Well, you know, uh, I, I have to tell people that I've worked on a lot of uh, projects that I never fully realized that for one reason or another, the the project drops out of development or drops out of uh, production, either due to a lack of money or, who knows, maybe even a lack of interest. So these things happen. And I think I have probably at least a half dozen projects that I worked on that were never produced. You know, we did development, we designed characters, we developed storylines, but the project, for one reason or another, just never happened. Now, as artists, we're not privy to what goes on in the upstairs uh, offices of businessmen and the decisions they have to make. But Hutch Landing was one of those projects that was in development for a couple of years. And uh, we designed characters. We did a number of uh, uh, movie tests where we tried out things using the cartoon characters, composited against uh, different backgrounds, uh, we were experimenting and uh, developing this new, hopefully, feature film, and it just never came about. But that can be said of a n- number of other projects I worked on that uh, we spent time and money, and the projects never 
gain the green light for production. So that is the nature of the business we work in, and that's part of the hazard of working in this. Uh, it's still show business where we have uh, winners and losers, hits and flops, and sometimes films simply don't get made. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know I'm thinking of the of Chanticleer, you know, the Walt Disney Studios that that became, uh, you know, some of the concept art was released years ago, and I, um, you know, and everyone was just so positive that one was going to get the green light. <laughs> Everybody was positive about Chanticleer, unfortunately, except Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Walt, Walt yeah. was the one person who didn't like it, but he was the one person who mattered. So when Walt didn't like it, it didn't matter how many other people liked it. It just wasn't going to. It just wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the way Walt ran his company. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody may have loved it, but Walt didn't like it. He didn't care for it. So Chanticleer never moved into production, and that was just the way it goes. And uh, that's why the studio was run by a man named Walt Disney. Yeah. He, he made those final decisions. And whether you liked them or not, you you went with them because he was the boss. Mm-hmm. Now, your artistic journey led you back to Walt Disney Productions in 1983. So what compelled you to return after all those years? <laughs> well, what compelled me to return was uh, the, the boss over in Disney's publishing department asking me to come back. And he asked me if I would come back to Disney around the first of the year uh, in 83. He asked me again in the summer of uh, 1983, and he asked me again in the fall of 1983. And every time I turned him down, I said, no, I don't think I want to come back to Disney at this time. Well, by the time, uh, I guess it was around November or December of 1983, I changed my mind and said, yeah, I will come back, but I'll come back for a couple of years, but no more than that. Well, that job I took was in Disney's publishing department, a job that I thought would last two years. Instead, it lasted another 10 years. So sometimes you, you, you never know uh, what you're getting into, but my years in Disney publishing were uh, insightful. I had the opportunity to become a writer a matter of fact, I was hired uh, as a writer and not as an artist. Up to that point, I was always hired as an artist. But this time around, I became a writer in Disney's publishing department, and I wrote story after story after story for comic books, comic strips, children's books, just any number of uh, items uh, intended for print. And uh, I look back on this, it was a really great opportunity because it had allowed me the opportunity to do a lot of writing. And that's how you learn, by doing a lot. And when I realized, I, when I worked on a movie, I was on a film, sometimes two or three years, on one motion picture. But when I was writing for print, I was writing a dozen stories a month. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually doing more writing, writing for print, than I ever was writing for film. And so this turned out to be a glorious opportunity, because it allowed me to develop as a writer. That's great. And then, and speaking of films, you then got back into animation, and you worked on some of the classics during what was regarded now as the renaissance of Disney animated features. Worked on The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was a, yeah. sort of an interesting film, very different from from Disney's oh, yeah. other 
other classics. Little little darker take there. And um, I do, and and, and so, as a matter of fact, the reason I, I I chose to go back to Disney Animation was because of the Hunchback. Mm-hmm. I found the idea of uh, doing the Hunchback of Notre Dame as a feature animated film. I found that totally intriguing because it seemed like it would be the last thing you would ever do uh, for a Disney animated motion picture musical. And so I found the project so odd and bizarre and compelling, I knew I wanted to work on it. So it was the Hunchback of Notre Dame that lured me back into Disney animation. (laughs) And I stayed in animation for another 10 years, making film after film. It's funny because when we were re- when I was researching for this episode, I um I was playing the soundtrack to the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and then I came across the fact that that's what compelled you to come back um, yeah. to the studio. And I thought, oh, what a good, what a happy coincidence! Now on oh, yeah. Milan, now on Milan, you worked with the great Joe Grant, and yes, yes. And, and now now you Joe and and Bernie Mattinson. You are now the old timers. You were sort of the the three old men. So, what, what what was that like? Now you started out working with the nine old men, and now you guys were the ones the young animators were sort of going to as mentors. Yeah, you know that happens. You know, uh, time goes by fast when you're having fun. <laughs> you come to Disney as a young kid, you know, just out of high school or just out of college. And you're like uh, 19 or 20, and you're just a kid. And boy, you look around, and the years have gone past, and now you realize you're one of the old men. You know, you're now in your 60s or 70s, and you're one of the old-timers, and another group of young kids are suddenly looking up to you for advice and for guidance, because now you are the old-timer. And so for guys like myself and Bernie Mattinson and Vance Gary and Joe Grant, we were the four geezers. We were <laughs> the guys from another era of Disney. We had worked on films like, you know, Sleeping Beauty and The Jungle Book. And way back then, Joe Grant, who goes all the way back to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Joe was truly uh, a legendary guy. Uh, how, how many people can say they worked on Snow White? And oh, could still be worked still be employed in the 1990s. <laughs> so what What longevity? So Joe Grant was uh, was my hero, a, a guy who can uh, span the years from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs all the way up to Mulan, where I had the opportunity to work with Joe on that film. So, yeah, so it so turned out that we were the new old-timers and with a bunch of kids who now looked up to us. Mm-hmm. And But, you no, know, that's the way it goes. One day those kids... They'll be old timers and there'll be a new generation of kids looking up to them. So that's how this business carries on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's nice to know that kind of thing is going to continue year after year. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then, but your career wasn't done. You went over to a completely new medium. You went over to Pixar and worked in digital on Toy Story 2. So, how did you go from hand drawn over to digital animation? Well, that was really uh, a no-brainer because uh, in this case, uh, people have often asked me, how did you make the jump from traditional hand-drawn animation to to digital? And for me, there was absolutely no transition at all because storytelling remains storytelling. 
whether it's a hand-drawn film or a digital film. What I was doing on Toy Story 2 and then later on Monsters Incorporated was no different than what I did on The Jungle Book or other earlier Disney films. I'm still telling uh, a compelling story. I'm still trying to create uh, a lovable and, and uh, characters that will resonate with audiences. I'm still trying to do the same job I did when I was doing a hand-cut film. Because there's really no difference. Sure, the medium is different. Uh, now uh, the character is being animated in a computer and not on paper. But the story development is no different than uh, when we were doing The Jungle Book back in 1966. It's still the story process. You are still trying to weave uh, a compelling narrative. You're still trying to engage your audiences with uh, delightful characters. And so, you know, the job hasn't really changed any. The medium has changed, but the job is exactly the same. So my moving from Disney to Pixar, for me, that was absolutely no transition. I was doing the same job I'd always done. Mm-hmm. Just with new tools, I guess. Just with new tools. Uh, the, yeah. yeah. Only tools had changed. <laughs> now... Now then, um, you know, you talked about how Joe Grant was working on Mulan, and, you know, he kept, kept working to his 90s. I mean, quite literally died at his animator's desk. Um, that's, that's right. Yeah, like they said in your documentary, died a Viking's death, you know. For yeah, artists. that's right. That's a Viking funeral. That's yeah. what is hand. Yes. Know, what are we, that's the way for an animator to go. You know, yes. pencil in hand. I can't think of a better way to die than having the pencil in your hand at your drawing board. <laughs> but but in but when you turned 65 you were told that your position had been discontinued and you were forced into retirement and and you address this and so does Adrian in in a documentary you know Floyd Norman in animated um life uh i i should just let you talk about this cuz i it's captured very well in the film how this affected you i mean what you know what just if you can share that with us, because I mean, well, you were you were at your peak still. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things where, and and I, I don't want to just single myself out as the only one this has happened to, because mm-hmm. this has happened to many many uh, artists uh, who had reached that magical age of sixty five, and were then, if not made to leave, at least encouraged to uh, put down their drawing pencil and retire. No, I don't agree with this, and uh, I, I think it's a, a terrible thing to do. But, you know, that's the way business operates, and I'm, I'm realistic enough to know, well, this is business. Uh, I may not agree with it, but this is the way business is done today. And so, uh, again, I have to reiterate, I was not the only artist who suffered this mm-hmm. fate. I wasn't, I wasn't happy about it, but I realized when I did uh, retire, I realized, yeah, I could retire, but I didn't have to stop working. And so, for me, that's a win-win situation. Okay, I can be retired. I can collect the pension. However, I can still go out and look for work. And if I can find it, I'm back on the job again. So that's exactly what I did. So when I left Disney uh, around the year 2000, I went over to Universal to work on Curious George, which was an animated feature film in development. I went to other studios to develop other feature-length films, and I worked on television shows uh, as well. 
So I found there was still plenty of work out there for a guy who wanted to work and who had not lost his creative edge, who was willing to try new things and was willing to keep on working. I didn't look forward to going out to the golf course and playing golf every day. I didn't look forward to sitting on a lawn chair and sipping a mint julep all day. Mm -hmm. I wanted work. I wanted to continue to be creative. And I wanted to, if I could, offer what advice I could to young people, uh, young artists coming along, young writers and directors, animators. And I could pass on what I had learned at Disney from the nine old men and from Walt Disney in particular. I found out I had advice to give. I had something to share. And so I thought, why keep all this to myself? I need to share this stuff. And that's partly why I wrote a book. And that's partly why I go out to colleges and universities and give lectures. I'm just sharing what the old timers shared with me. And I don't want that knowledge to be forgotten. I don't want that knowledge to die. And so I continue to speak out. I continue to lecture. I'll be doing a lecture at USC in a couple of weeks, uh, the University of Southern California. I'll be lecturing there next week in their, in their, film, uh, in their film school. And I'll be speaking at other uh, uh, venues as well as I kind of like carry on and, and uh, spread the word, spread the gospel of animation, so to speak. Because I think uh, I've, got, I've got stories, I've got information that's worth passing on. Absolutely. I learned it from Disney's best. I learned it from Walt Disney himself. And so why not share what I've learned? <laughs> now, one of the things that Adrian talks about in the documentary is that, that you would drive her to work. She, she yeah. also she works at Disney Worldwide Publishing. And you just sort of start walking around and, and chatting with people, seeing what was going on, sharing your knowledge. And, and, and then a new word was coined called floitering. Yeah, <laughs> that, that I just love. Can you share what, tell our listeners what floitering is? Oh, floitering is a combination of the words "my name Floyd" and loitering, because if you saw me around the studio, uh, you look at a guy who doesn't have a job and who is just walking around, and he's basically loitering uh, around the Disney studio. So that loitering and Floyd was combined to create a new word, floitering, where I would just wander around from building to building, from uh, unit to unit, uh, division to division, and look at what people were doing and pass on a word of advice or two. Oftentimes, people would ask for my advice. They would ask for, uh, you know, how would I handle this situation? Uh, you know, what was it like when you worked on sword in the stone. Uh, how would you handle this situation in this particular film? So I was always happy to lend a hand to pass on a word of advice to these young kids who were learning their way, as I once did back in the 1950s when I was learning my way. So Floyd Green serves a purpose. It's not just me hanging out, but it's me hanging out with a purpose, and that is to dispense information uh, what I would consider hopefully valuable information uh, garnered from Disney's finest, Disney's best, and from the old maestro himself. So that's why I floiter every day to spread the word, to spread the Disney legacy, and to keep it alive. 
I think that's great. So yeah. now, you know, you did mention you, you wrote a book, uh, you know, Floyd Norman Animated Life, and that's still out there on Amazon, because I looked for it the other day. And yeah, you, and, and you've made another jump in your career. You, you've gone from being the creator of characters in a film to being the star of a film, the documentary we're talking about, Floyd Norman and Animated Life. How, um, how did the idea for the documentary come about? Well, you know, it, it, uh, the film starts in an amazing way, sometimes odd and quirky ways. In this case, I was at the San Diego Comic Book Convention, and I went over to congratulate a friend of mine who had just had a documentary made about him. And that was the illustrator, Drew Struzan. And I went over to say hello to Drew and met the young man who made the documentary, was, was there, he was present at the time. And so he said he had just finished his film, and now he was shopping around for a new project. Well, the fellow standing next to me said, well, here's your new project standing right here. What about this guy? Well, the more the uh, young filmmaker began to learn about me, the more he realized maybe he did have something uh, in me as the subject for a new documentary. Uh, that he was going to direct. So that's how it all began. You know, it was never intentional. It just was just one of those chance meetings that began to gel into something. And out of that chance meeting where I was just saying congratulations on your new film, uh, a whole new film was born just on this uh, casual meeting at the San Diego Comic Book Convention. But, you know, that's how films start and sometimes mm -hmm. in the most unusual ways. You know, no, and and this is not, uh, you know, people think, oh, it's Disney Animator. This is a, you know, very sanitized, happy, you know, little film. And th this this really goes through the ups and downs of your life. And, and you're very frank, you know, yeah. uh, about it and very honest about it, uh, about events. Um, what was it a difficult process to choose? What would be depicted about your life on the screen? No, and I think for me, and it maybe it was easier for myself, because unlike most people, I also was in the role of a filmmaker. And that is, I understood filmmaking, having made films my whole life. My whole career was making films. So I trusted these filmmakers with my life. I basically handed my life over to them, put my life in their hands and said, uh, make your movie, tell your story. I will not interfere with you. I will not edit you. I will not filter information. Do the job you want to do, and I'll be here to support you in whatever you need. So I, I played no part in the filmmaking process other than to show up when they needed me, other than to provide film clips, photographs, video, whatever was needed uh, mm -hmm. to put the film together. Sometimes uh, sketches, gag ideas that they would later take and have them animated. So I was at their disposal. I was there to serve the project. And whatever they needed, I turned over to them. But I did not interfere with the filmmaking process. And believe you me, I had no idea what was on the film until I saw it for the first time. <laughs> so, so I was watching the film uh, as a first-timer, having really not seen much of anything on the production until they had a rough cut. And I viewed it for the first time like uh, any other filmmaker, any other viewer 
watching a film. I had the opportunity to watch my life uh, unfold before my eyes, and I was uh, very pleased with what the filmmakers had yeah. done. It it really is well done. But you know, the breakout star is Adrian. You know, in that film. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> I mean, she's a hoot. I really like her. And um, but but yeah, it's it is really it is really entertaining, um, yeah. and very well written. Uh, and um, but yeah, it 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 tackles a, it tackles a lot of topics. Not only your career, we've only scratched the surface in our yeah. conversation of what's in here. Um, it's, a pretty, and it's kind of hard to condense one's life down into uh, you know <laughs> an hour and a half. Yeah, and I, I watched it twice, and I thought the second time I thought, how did I miss all this stuff the first time I watched it? Because there's there's yeah. a lot in there. It's pretty yeah. Deadly. That's for sure. The filmmakers had a lot to squeeze into a limited amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said their first cut ran about three hours. Oh, and wow. And they had to whittle that down to an hour and a half. So there's a whole lot of living there, you know? I mean, yeah. there, there's so many stories I could go on telling, things that happened at Disney. Uh, so much stuff uh, I could tell, but there simply isn't time for it. Because you know you can only there's only so much time to to tell a story, and so you finally have to cut out a lot of stuff. But uh, I think when all is said and done, it gives a pretty comprehensive view of what my life was like and what my career was like. And overall, I think the tone of the film is positive. It's a happy film. It's not a film that's going to leave you bummed out. It's not not a downer. It's going to make you feel good. Not at all. Yeah, my life was good. And I had the opportunity to, to live a good life at one of the happiest places on earth, you know, the Disney studio. And boy, oh boy, what what could be better than that? Absolutely. You know? Oh, and don't talk past tense. Hey, you still got a lot to do yet. You're you're <laughs> still going. Don't say was and all that. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm still doing it. I'm still That's working. That's right. That's Even right. Today, I'm still still working on projects, so it's it's not over yet. <laughs> now, on October 10th, 2007, you were named a Disney legend. So now you yes. rank right up there with the nine old men. So um, I've heard other Disney legends talk about that day they got the call, that they were a legend. What was that day like for you? Well, you know, it, it, it was, I was somewhat taken aback because you, you don't think of yourself, uh, I mean, keep in mind, I'm, I'm in some pretty uh, amazing company. Uh, I'm up there with the, my heroes, uh, the guys who made the films I saw when I was a child. So to be, uh, to be a part of that group, part of that incredible group of talented men and women, that's really the, the highest compliment any Disney artist could ever receive. So, yeah, I was taken aback. I was surprised. I was shocked. But uh, I was also honored to be considered uh, good enough, you know, uh, talented enough to be counted in that number of, of my heroes. And they truly were my heroes, the people who, who I learned from and who made the amazing entertainments I saw when I was a little kid. So yeah, it was it was a very very special honor, and uh, it's still hard to believe that I'm that I'm called a Disney legend. But uh, so be it. I guess I guess they say I am. So maybe I am. I don't know. <laughs> oh, you are well deserved, living legend. <laughs> okay. 
So now, now you, you've talked about how, so your work, you've been carrying on the legacy of Walt Disney and, and sharing it with new generations of children. Why do you think that it, it is so important to carry on Walt's legacy? Well, I think the man who's made a contribution uh, to, to America, uh, to this country, to entertainment, to just bringing people happiness and joy, I, I, I think Walt's life is a life worth celebrating. He, he was a man who, who was a farm boy in Marceline, a, a man who came from very humble beginnings, and a man who built a great enterprise. And not just built an enterprise, but a happy enterprise, uh, uh, a business that brought joy to millions of people. Uh, boy, that's, that's a life uh, worth celebrating. And so, because I consider what Walt ha- had, had done with his life and the amazing things he created and continued to create uh, and was only cut off by his own mortality, uh, he would still be going today mm-hmm. had he lived. So I think a man like this is, is, a, is a life worth knowing, a life worth celebrating, and that's why I continue to, to talk to young people about the Disney legacy and about this amazing, amazing individual. Because some people don't even think Walt Disney was a real person. You know, you, you have that kind of thing going off today. Where like Walt Disney, was he, did he really exist? Was he a real person? Yes, he was real. Yes, he did exist. And yes, he was our leader and our visionary. So it's a life worth talking about. And uh, I do lectures at, at universities where I just talk about Walt Disney a, as a leader and his skills as, as a, a business leader and a creative leader and a visionary and a man who was uh, an incredible optimist and saw nothing but good in the future. I think that's, uh, that's something that I never get tired of sharing that with uh, young people. And, and I think that's a very important legacy we, uh, about a positive, optimistic vision for the future because we've talked about it on the show that I, I think young people are being given a very negative vision yeah. of the future. And I, I think it's important that we remember that optimistic vision and that we can make it happen. Oh, we, yeah. if, if we dedicate ourselves that this is what we are going to do to make the vision that exactly. optimistic future, you, we can do it. And, right. and, and I think children are being given such a disservice that mm-hmm. the, the, uh, of the message of a bleak future. And I, I agree. I think that's one of the strongest messages of Walt that we can give young people is this right. optimistic view of that's the future. Right. That's very true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, optimism is a very big part of, uh, of Disney. <laughs> Yeah. Now, yeah. When now, now there are young people listening to the show who who right now are listening to your stories in your life and how you overcame. You know, anytime a door was closed, you found that open window. Um, they they're now dreaming of becoming an artist, an animator, or a story artist. Um, what what is your advice for them? Well, my advice for anybody who uh, a young person, you know. Uh, you you have to you have to dream. It sounds corny, but Walt Disney was a dreamer. He really was. I mean, this whole enterprise had Walt Disney told uh, his fellow classmates in school 
what he would do one day, they would have thought he was nuts, you know, or they would have thought he was, uh, you know, what a dreamer. You know, none of that is going to happen. I, I think you have to dream, first of all, you know, you have, and, and you have to dream big. And then you, you get to work and you make those dreams come true. And mm-hmm. it sounds corny, but it can really happen. I tell people that when I was a little kid, five or six years old, I dreamed of one day working at the Walt Disney Studio. It wasn't an idle dream. I really believed it. And I really believed that if I worked hard enough and I persevered, one day that dream would come true. And one day it did. It did for me. It did for many of my colleagues who also dreamed of one day working at the Disney studio. I spoke with a young woman uh, about a month ago how she had dreamed of becoming a, a Disney story artist, but she knew that she wasn't. She was a woman, and she wasn't good enough, and she wasn't talented enough, and she knew she would never get that opportunity. But she kept on trying. She didn't give up. She didn't quit. She kept on trying. And so before you know it, she is the head of story on the Disney feature film. And she, she has made that incredible jump, not only to the job at Disney, but to be elevated to a prestigious job on a Disney feature film. But once again, she followed her dream. And I tell this to young people, you have to, first of all, have a dream. You've got to have a goal. How do you get there if you don't know where you're going? So if you have that goal in front of you and you truly believe in, and that you can attain it and then you put in the work, it's not going to be dropped in your lap, but you've got to put in the hard work in order to get there. But it can happen. It happened to me. It happened to countless others. But it's because we dreamed it. And we did the work, and then that dream came true. So, boy, there's nothing more optimistic than that, is there? No, not at all. Absolutely. And and like all Disney films, your documentary, Floyd Norman, An Animated Life, has a happy ending. Um, at the end, you are rehired by the Walt Disney Animation Studios. Yes, so, yes. So, so what what is next for Floyd Norman? Well, you know, uh, I don't know what's next exactly, and in and, and a way, that's kind of a, a good thing, uh, not knowing exactly. I do know I'm uh, partnering with my old producer, uh, Don Hahn. Uh, we've got some irons in the fire. We're, we've got some films in mind. Uh, Don, as you know, is the producer. Uh, he was the producer of the original Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. and now he's the producer of the new live-action Beauty and the Beast so, so Don has been keeping busy. Well, I'm going to be busy with Don and, uh, and working with him in the future. Uh, I've also got a new book that I'm doing for Disney that's going to be out next year. Can't tell you a lot about it right now because Disney want, they want it kept under wraps because they want to do a big reveal. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that. So, you know, there's always something going on in my life. There's a new book, a new film. But to be sure, I'm always working on something. And that's important. It's important that I stay busy, that I stay engaged, that I stay creative, because really that's what keeps you young. Oh, absolutely. That's what I was just thinking. Now, yeah. now, now, my seven-year-old granddaughter is has my love of Disney and my love of Disney history, even at that young age. So when I tell her I spoke with you, she actually she will be very excited. And um, but in in fifty years now, when my granddaughter attends a Floyd Norman retrospective at the oh. El Capitan Theater, and she oh. brags to her friends that her grandfather met and spoke with Floyd Norman, um, 
how do you want to be remembered at that retrospective 50 years from now? Oh, I don't think I, uh, you know, I, I often remind people there were hundreds of us at the Disney studio, you know, literally hundreds of Disney artists working at the studio when I arrived there back in the 1950s. I never saw myself as any more special than any other artist. Uh, there were incredible, talented people working for Walt Disney. I was just uh, grateful to be uh, in their number, to be one of them and to be accepted by, by Walt, because I knew that Walt uh, only wanted the best. And when he uh, gave you that tap on the shoulder, it meant that you qualified to be uh, the one, of the one of the best and to be able to work for Disney. Uh, to me, that, that means a lot all by itself. The, the fact that I could be, you know, inducted into that group to be uh, accepted by Walt Disney himself, the, you know, the, the old maestro himself, the, to, to want me to be part of his team. Uh, that's just a, a tremendous honor. I, I'm, I'm, it, it, I'm humbled by it. I don't, I've never thought of myself as any kind of a big shot or a stellar talent. I'm just one of many, many talents at the Disney studio who had an opportunity to show what I could do. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunities that came my way. I'm grateful that Walt gave me a shot to work on the Jungle Book. Uh, that that was totally unexpected. And there are many other things that happened throughout my career that just came my way, and, uh, and, and I'm grateful for it. So I, I guess I can be remembered as another Disney artist, not, not any more special than any other, but just another hardworking artist who, who managed to live his dream. And boy, oh boy, it, uh, you know, it's better than that. If you can live your dream, uh, it doesn't get much better. So I'm, I'm very grateful for everything that's come my way. And, and we are grateful you came our way, believe me. <laughs> and, and for our listeners, if you would like to learn more about Floyd, because, oh, and, and Floyd, the, all those stories that ended up on the cutting room floor of documentary, yeah. <laughs> you, you can come back and you can share all of those with us. Uh, oh, yeah. This is just this has just been a delight, and uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but but if you'd like to get the documentary Floyd Norman and Animated Life, I, I I cannot recommend it highly enough. And if you want to hear more stories from Floyd, you can order the Blu-ray, uh, which I'm holding in my hand right now. At floydnormanmovie.com, there are also some great bonus features that we didn't talk about in here that are really, really a delight. So you want to, um, I'm, I'm going to let you discover those. And you can also um, download the film from iTunes. You can order it on there. You can also get to know Floyd a little better through social media. Floyd is on Facebook um, at Floyd Norman Documentary. Also on Twitter at Floyd Norman Doc. And Instagram, you can follow um, Floyd at Floyd Norman Movie. And we will have all of those links in our show notes. Yeah, I think people can find me. If, <laughs> if they try hard enough, they can, they can track me down. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and I'll look forward to the next time you're at the Walt Disney Family Museum, also, which I hope is soon, uh, soon. 
And also, um, I know the film has been making the rounds in theaters. It played in San Francisco recently. So keep an eye out at different film festivals and theaters. Um, you might be fortunate enough to have that big shared experience and yeah. seeing the film on the screen. So, um, so Floyd, thank you so much for bringing joy and inspiration to our lives through your art and humor and your wisdom. Um, it, it's been a delight and honor to have a troublemaker like you uh, with us on Connecting with Walt. Well, it's been my pleasure. And uh, again, I, I, can't, uh, I can't thank the Disney organization enough for uh, inviting me into their wonderland and uh, allowing me to play there for some 60 years or so, uh, just having a great time making movies, making toys and games, and, uh, and making a lot of kids and a lot of adults happy. So I made people happy, and they've made me happy as well. So uh, I can't think of a better life than that. Thank you, and thank you for sharing your animated life with all of us. Well, it's been my pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you and answering your questions, and, uh, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Oh, definitely. I have your yeah. number. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks oh, a lot. You're welcome. Thank you. Our conversation with Floyd Norman is our happy ending for the October 2016 season of Connecting with Walt. However, you don't have to wait until January to hear from me and Craig. We will both be attending the D23 Destination D Amazing Adventures event at Walt Disney World on November 19th and 20th. We'll also be on Podcast Cruise 6.0 in December. And even more exciting is now that Connecting with Walt is on its own iTunes feed. Craig and I can surprise you with those occasional bonus Connecting with Walt episodes in the off-season. So keep an eye and ear out for those. So Craig, until our next season in January 2017, what will you be up to? Well, well basically everything you just listed. <laughs> uh, plus is so much more obviously uh, our lives are always busy all the time so uh, between just getting in all the holiday stuff in the theme parks uh it, just everything um i will most likely never be sleeping like always <laughs> that's not good well at least you're you're getting ready for when you and kylie have have a baby because <laughs> Because then you will not sleep for at least 18 years. Well, that's the Christmas <laughs> gift that I definitely do not want this year. But uh, maybe next year. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, it's funny how Santa can deliver unexpected little surprises sometimes. Oh, isn't it? Isn't it, though? <laughs> yes. What? But, well, and you know what? You can all find me every Sunday night on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulata-Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all and all Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and even more Disney history. Listen to us live on Mixler Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. You can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. And if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check us out on iTunes for past episodes. And also check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes 
at disunplug.com. You can also send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Masketeer Michael. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. So, Craig, I hope you and Kylie have a spooktacular Halloween, a happy Thanksgiving, and a joyous holiday season. The same goes for you and Carol and everyone else out there. Definitely. Thank you to all our listeners for making our first year of Connecting with Walt so successful. Yes, thank you. Because, yeah, I mean, we we never anticipated such... um, Gosh, such really this so much success and making so many new friends yeah, who want to. There's really is sorry for interrupting. There really is such an enthusiasm out there for people wanting to hear these stories and these experiences and and everything surrounding it. And uh, it's we we really couldn't have imagined uh, just how successful this would be. And it's it's all because of everyone's dedication out there to to tune in so really really thank you yes thank you and tell your friends give them the wonderful christmas gift of connecting with walt <laughs> and, and uh, have and, and and tell them to download us on itunes yes. and <laughs> if you want to throw in a t-shirt of course at our online store on t public then that works too <laughs> i completely forgot about that oh the perfect gift there you uh, go. It, the, the, the connecting with Walt T-shirts in multiple colors. Um, I'm sporting the iPhone case right now, and I know my wife has the laptop cover. So anyway, so yeah, all kinds of wonderful gift ideas to help you connect with Walt during this holiday season. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing: that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>